Hi, what's going on, veterinary anesthesia nerds? This is Tasha McNerney, and I am here with another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast, where we talk about nothing but veterinary anesthesia, pain management, and all the things in between. Today, I have got a doozy for all of you ventilation physiology nerds. I know it's a niche group, but I know you guys are out there. Um, I maybe am low-key one of them as well, uh, so you know how I feel about my ventilator, etc. And that is why I have asked uh, this esteemed guest on the program. So not necessarily within the veterinary field, but I want you guys to know our next guest, Glennis Wildman, because not only is she a ventilation expert, I mean, she has a master's in advanced ventilation. She has experience with ECMO. She is a respiratory therapist. She also has a PhD. She has multiple years in research and she knows all of the ins and outs of ventilation and what we can do to help support our patients under anesthesia. So welcome to the podcast, Glennis Wildman. Hey, thank you for having me. Happy Sunday. Yes, it is Sunday when we're recording. Um, it is a dreary, dreary fall Sunday here in Philadelphia. So we're kind of like cocooning inside. Um, I'm not going to lie. We, my husband and I are like decided that we are just going to do nothing today and have a Love Island marathon and like completely rot our brains. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm not far off you. I, it's dreary here in Oregon and it's almost the same and I can see myself reading the afternoon away. Mm, well, that sounds way more, you know, academic than mine. I probably should be reading my afternoon away, but <laughs> here we are. All right. So let's get into it. Glennis, um, I want to talk to you because, A, you you have so much experience with ventilation, with the actual mechanical ventilation and all of these things, um, not only in, in human medicine, pediatrics, but also in research animals as well. Uh, I want to talk to you because I feel like we in veterinary medicine really are not completely late to the game when it comes to like advanced mechanical ventilation, but a little bit. Uh, a lot of the clinics that I go into either don't have a ventilator at all, like the technician is the ventilator, they are providing the positive pressure ventilation when needed, or I go into a lot of clinics and they have a ventilator. Maybe it's a simple Hallowell, you know, like a volume-driven ventilator, or they have a newer ventilator that has the different, you know, where you can switch between modes but they really don't know how to use it. And so that's why I kind of wanted to have you on today so you could kind of explain all the different things, when we could be using it, how we could be using it to better our patient's experience, uh, and just, you know, what we need to do to get more education, because I'm always striving to do better here. Well, I think you guys are doing a great job. I've been to many of your conferences, and I'm so impressed. I just was at a conference this past weekend, and and they had anesthesia management and ventilation, different opportunities and, and why they would head down different paths. And, you know, it's come, your education pathway has come a long ways in the last few years. So I'm pretty impressed because I'll be honest, you know, coming from the human side, the ventilation is obviously very, very different and has been for a long time. And significantly, it has partially been due to cost, you know, like cost constraints have been a little bit uh, different in the in the veterinary world than they have been in the human side. So I think kudos to you guys for doing what you've done so well for so long. Yes, 100%. I, I agree with you. I do think a lot of it has to do with cost. Um, I'm sure that, you know, I don't know if I told you, like one of my earlier experiences was like a French bulldog thoracotomy and they the place did not have a ventilator. And so, you know, here we have an open chest and I am the ventilator for that, you know, 
90 minutes of the procedure. So it really highlighted that, you know, we do maybe need to learn a little bit more about it. I do think that for a lot of practices, especially practices that are doing procedures that are under anesthesia for a long time, I'm talking like, you know, hour, two hour, three hours. Sometimes these practices are doing like dentistries and some of your more involved dentistries can easily last two to three hours under anesthesia. So I do think that ventilation is something that we need to keep in mind. Most practices now compared to 10 years ago do have end tidal CO2 monitoring, which I do think has helped quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll get into that a little bit with our case that we're going to talk about today. But for the practices that don't have end tidal CO2 monitoring, just kind of like throw this out there. In your experience, is there a big difference between side stream monitoring and mainstream monitoring of end tidal CO2? Yes. I mean, you can have, there's a lot more dampening of your mainstream versus your side stream because it's impacted by water that can be accumulating from the patient, right? So I find that that it's great if you have superb water management within your circuit and that kind of thing, but it is impacted significantly by the rain out. So I find that um, mainstream, side stream, there is quite a bit of a difference. So we typically see side stream more in, uh, in human, just because not anesthesia, we see uh, our mainstream, sorry, in anesthesia, a lot side stream in ICU settings just because Mm -hmm. you can control humidity, you have heated circuits, you know, all those things that really take uh, a big play into what you're seeing in in the um, actual airway. So, okay, I don't really see a difference. Like in in anesthesia, I would probably always almost go mainstream. The big reason is, is it's better capable of dealing with the humidity. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Because I know that a lot of practices do have side stream um, mainly because of cost. Right, um, right. But again, good to know the differences between the two and when you should look out for, and, you know, remember to replace your side stream that, you know, mm-hmm. they, they don't, they're not used indefinitely. They can, you know, the water trap needs to be looked at and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. All right. So let's get into our case today. Uh, Glennis, we are going to talk about what happens when a patient's under anesthesia for a while. Uh, The case example we're going to do is a Labrador retriever that was chewing on a deer antler and now has fractured their upper fourth premolar. And since this is like a a two-year-old Labrador, we know that this extraction is going to be a little bit more tough. I mean, certainly extractions where um, they have a lot of bone loss, those are usually easier. But these young, healthy animals where the tooth breaks because of trauma or something like this, we know that it can be a little bit more of an involved extraction. So we know that this patient is going to be on their side or even their back for a couple of hours. And I want to talk to you because what we see happen a lot of times with these patients is that, you know, we know anesthetics are going to depress respiration to an extent, uh, but this patient's still spontaneously breathing. However, under anesthesia, his end tidal CO2 is in the 60s. Let's say it's consistently between 60, 63, something like that. And he's been under anesthesia for about 40 minutes while we're getting the cleaning and the radiographs and we get permission from the owner. So we know we still have about an hour or maybe even more under anesthesia for this patient with end tidal CO2s already in the 60s. Now, you know, sometimes we hear that, oh, it's okay because you can do this thing called permissive hypercapnia. 
can you walk us through what permissive hypercapnia is and when I would truly say, okay, let's re- let it ride at an end tidal CO2 of 62? Uh, when, when would you intervene? And then, then we can talk about maybe some interventions on our ventilator. So I'm going to defer back to the human world um, just because that's my area. So when we really um, tend to allow permissive hypercapnia is when the patient has a pre-existing condition that may be respiratory cardio related. And so we know that if we change the, the CO2 downwards too much, that their, um, their drive to breathe is going to be decreased. So that's typically when we will allow permissive hypercapnia. Um, on a healthy young individual, that's not traditionally where we would go. And so we try to keep our, our CO2s, you know, 35 to 45, just because of pH in, in humans. But if you have a specific range you want to go to, you know, with a young, healthy dog, I don't think that that's an unreasonable um, direction to head because you want to keep that that young dog's lungs and well, let's go just backtrack a little bit. I'd be worried about you know if you have a three or four hour procedure, this animal is going to have a little bit of atelectasis because what what are we doing? We are bypassing the upper airway. So when we do that in a human or a dog or a cat or any animal. What we're doing is we all have a natural level of PEEP. So for anyone out there who doesn't really understand PEEP, basically it's like a little bit of a breath hold that we have that's naturally occurring because of our upper airways. That basically prevents everything from leaving our lungs. So let's do a little bit of a deep dive there. What does that mean? So we have these little air sacs in our lungs. These little air sacs, if we don't keep them slightly inflated, they, they um, collapse and has, causes something called atelectasis. Well, reinflating them, if you ever tried to reinflate a balloon that's completely been deflated, it's not easy. But if you have a little bit of air in that balloon, it's really easy. So that is the whole purpose of our upper airways is A, to clean, B, to keep our lungs a little bit of inflated so that we have a decreased work of breathing. So we don't want to head down that path with animals or people, if we can. We want to keep that those lungs slightly inflated because the outcome at the back end of any case is going to be better. Does that kind of make sense? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So so that's kind of you know where when I look at permissive hypocapnia or stuff like that. I mean it's 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 okay on patients that perhaps have a pre-existing condition and you don't want the take down their CO2 because you lose the drive. But on these young people or young young animals, I think it's really important that we look at something a little bit different, which might be PEEP, you know, to support that because that will sometimes help with your, your hypercapnia, you know, because it just keeps those airways a little open, prevents the atelectasis and, and encourages better ventilation. So that could be a starting uh, place for, you know, your patients that are breathing spontaneously. Okay, excellent. So I know like I worked at a practice where they didn't have a ventilator in their kind of prep room and they would have some animals that would start out with, you know, hypoventilating and hypercapnia and they would just put a peep valve on the end of the expiratory limb um, just to keep like five centimeters of water in there. So I, I think that, you know, when you're out in prep, that's something that you can do if you don't have access to the, you know, a ventilator, you could set it um, or on a machine where you can set it. I do think that that's a really good thing to keep in mind is that 
PEEP and then some of these systems like the Hallowell or the Surgivet, like these systems that, you know, are those volume driven ventilators, they have a, a PEEP already kind of within it. Mm-hmm. I think it's like two to three that I read that they already have that intrinsic yep. PEEP. Yep. Awesome. So the difference between an intrinsic PEEP, so, so, so I don't know if this is something that people really want to want to go into, but there is a difference between like an intrinsic PEEP and, and, uh, uh, natural peep. So an intrinsic peep is basically overcoming the work of breathing. So that is something that can make it more difficult and can actually cause more collapse. So a, a peep valve is actually a much better thing than u- utilizing the uh, intrinsic peep of an anesthesia machine because they have to overcome opening that valve to the bellows, which can be pretty significant. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I always think of when I'm, you know, when I'm thinking about, you know, let's prevent atelectasis because, you know, that'll be, that happens fairly quickly in animals or people. It doesn't take very long for de-recruitment of the alveoli to happen. So kind of a, you know, just kind of in the back of your mind, you know, if we can start off early with a little bit of PEEP, that might prevent some of your CO2 buildup right away, just because you're improving ventilation a little bit and preventing atelectasis. Yeah. And I mean, from a cost perspective, those PEEP valves are not they're not that much to have mm-hmm. on hand. You know, if you're like, listen, I cannot get a fancy ventilator right now. I don't have $9,000 to spend. Like mm-hmm. I think having those peep valves and understanding them is a nice way to go. Let's kind of say that you, you, your patient's in the 60s, like our Labrador friend, and we're, we don't want to just say like, oh, it's fine. It'll be at 63, 65 yes. the whole time. Um, let's say we do want to do some ventilatory support with some mechanical ventilation on mm-hmm. this patient. And a lot of the times I go into practices, there are some new ventilators on the market. Instead of just having a volume driven, like set volume, and then playing with it to get a certain pressure, a lot of the ventilators that we're seeing now in animal medicine um, actually let us choose between volume support a thing called pressure support. And then one that I recently started using in this past year, which, cause I just didn't know about it until then, uh, which is SIMV. And mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about these things because I think that as these newer ventilators come onto the market and more practices, especially, especially at university level and specialty and emergency practices are utilizing these ventilators. I want everybody to know what do these different modes mean? And when would you choose one over the other? Right. So um, let's go back to your lab. Let's, you know, we'll head back to that case. So if he's breathing regularly, so what would his respiratory rate be? Like, just give me an example. Like, yeah. So let's say I have this this Labrador under anesthesia based on his pre-meds and everything. He's, you know, has an entail CO2 63 and his respiratory rate is about six breaths per minute. Do we have a, the ability to look at what his tidal volume is? Like, can we see that on on the on the machine? Yes, we can. So let's just say his he's just kind of panting along and his tidal volumes are low. So, you know, some there's two options that you could look at. So I'm going to talk about the, the modes of ventilation really quick and just so that we could um, figure out which way we want to go with this little guy. So you mentioned pressure support. So I look at pressure support as a little bit of like power steering. And so I'm going to be dating myself here because I'm a little old. <laughs> So, you know, I grew up driving trucks with my, in my dad's farm that, you know, you would, 
you turn and turn and turn and you wouldn't go very far as far into your turning. And then the advent of power steering. So basically the energy that took to turn that circle wasn't as much as, you know, previously. So pressure support, that's essentially what you're doing. So for that tiny sip of a breath, we're just going to increase and make it easier for that animal to take the breath. So what do we do with that? We would set a sensitivity, like how sensitive do we want this machine to be to that animal? And how much support in terms of centimeters of water do we give? So with pressure support, things to remember is that is a pressure support. You're not going to have a volume. It's going to be variable. It's going to change with the compliance of the chest. So there are little things that can result in those changes. Is the, does the dog producing secretions? Is there water in the tube? You know, all that kind of stuff impacts those things. But pressure support is a wonderful way to support ventilation of an already breathing animal. And another huge advantage that can never be underestimated is our respiratory muscles, whether you're a dog, a human, whatever, they decline extremely quickly. So even within two hours, you can have a significantly decreased respiratory strength in, in, in your respiratory muscles. So this kind of, by keeping them exercising, if you will, keeps them strong and mm. healthy in a faster recovery time at the end of anesthesia. So pressure support, that is a great mode for somebody who's spontaneously breathing, but you will have to manipulate the pressure based on the level of sedation and what you want. So it may take a little bit more playing than the next mode that we're going to talk about. So remember this one's completely spontaneous. It had usually had they come with a backup rate. That's cool. So SIMV, what is SIMV? So that's another uh, recent, and that was actually one of the areas of research that I did in neonatal was SIMV. So what does that mean? So it means synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation. So it means that essentially you're going to give so many breaths per minute through the machine, but on the back end, when they're breathing spontaneous, you can also put that pressure support on so they can have a little bit of support on the, on their spontaneous breaths. So what is the advantage to a synchronized uh, breathing? Well, you're never ever going to cause a superimposition of a breath over an existing breath pattern of an animal. So we're not going to... Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can see the disadvantage that right away. You can cause pneumos. You can cause, Mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of different, you know, you can cause uh, pressure problems in the lungs, all that kind of stuff. So you you just don't want to do that if you can. So this breath, if we were to look at it, the patient is breathing along, happy, happy, happy. And then it's initiating a breath. And so the machine goes, ah, it's initiating. The patient's initiating. Ooh, I'm just going to augment this to the tidal volume that we want. So let's say we have the tidal volume set at 300 cc's or 200 cc's or whatever you feel that that patient needs to uh, supplement that. So it never, ever superimposes a breath on it on an already existing breath. It just allows it to kind of ride the wave, just like if you're on the ocean and surfing. It just keeps on a nice, smooth application of that breath, allowing CO2 to be cleared better. Very nice. If that makes sense. It does make sense. And I will say that I, since I kind of learned about it last year, I have utilized it so much more. Um, mm-hmm. for my patients that are 
they have a pretty regular spontaneous breath pattern, Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe they just need a little support. And I will usually like start with SIMV and then watch and then watch their CO2. Do you usually put on a pressure support with that, Tasha? Do you? Yes. Yeah. And so um, what do you start with? Five or something like a pressure support of five above baseline? Um, no, I want to say I feel like it's higher than that Eight. normally. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, you can, you can start at all different levels. Like I just look at my tidal volumes and see where I approximately want to be to support. And within that, you kind of have to be aware of your CO2, right? Because let's say your dog is panting or whatever has that, you know, or, you know, fast respiratory rate and kids are very similar too. And it's kind of a neurological thing. Maybe they're hot, maybe they're whatever, you know, because there can be certain things that cause them. So you kind of have to be aware that you don't want to blow off your CO2 too much because on the conjure right. side, right, you know, you can have neurological impairment if you've blown off your CO2 too much. So, because it causes vascular constriction. So you kind of have to keep an eye on everything and, and you guys are wizards at it probably more than I've ever, I mean, I have so much appreciation for, for your field. Had I have known. <laughs> it's not too late. Do you want to move to New Jersey? We're hiring. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of fun dynamics that go into there. So, but SIMB definitely just is, is just a little bit of extra support. Give them like a minimal rate and then a pressure support keeps everybody happy and they can, uh, you know, keep your CO2 in that well-desired range on an easier platform. That's for sure. Okay, nice. Now I do feel like the majority of people, um, either because they have started out with these, you know, again, I'm just using Hallowell as a brand, like in the same way that I say, you know, like Ziploc bags, um, Hallowell, Surgivet, whatever the brand is you have, but most people are used to kind of these very simple, um, volume driven where they'll, they'll set a volume based on the, you know, like 10 to 15 mils per keg of tidal volume. Mm-hmm. So when I have, you know, let's say this more advanced ventilator where I can choose between volume and pressure and SIMV, um, when would you go to volume mode? So volume mode, I would probably go to use, utilize that mode on anything, any animal that was having something thoracic. So um, you need to have a tidal volume in. So if you look at, at um, volume versus pressure control. So I'm going to, I'm just going to compare the two, if you don't mind for a second. (laughs) So in volume, you're always going to have the volume in irrelevant to the compliance of the chest. So what does that mean? You're going to be able to clear that CO2. So that's the upside. The downside is that you can cause shearing, barrel trauma, all that kind of thing, because your compliance can change, but you can have very high peak pressures. So that's why we always set a pressure limit when you're, especially when you're volume ventilating, right? Because you don't want to go over the, you don't want to cause a pneumo. You don't want to cause any mm-hmm. trauma. You don't want to cause any shearing. You don't want to cause any of those long-term impact uh, results from your ventilation. So that's the advantage and the disadvantage. And that's when I would use volume control. I'll be honest. I'm not a huge fan of volume control, there's other modes now that are going to be coming down and I think are being utilized more and more like uh, pressure, pressure regulated volume control, 
And basically what that is, is it ensures that you are delivering a breath of a, a volume breath, but at the lowest possible pressures over a longer period of time. And so how does traditional volume control get there? So this is going to kind of, for you anesthesia nerds that really are into, into flows, turn on your ears, but if you're not into it, plug your ears. But so the big difference is that, uh, volume control is constant flow. So it just ramps up really fast flow until it reaches that tidal volume and then it shuts off. So that can be pretty rough on somebody that's, you know, especially if, if there's a situation going on where, you know, the compliance is changing in the chest, you can cause all those things that we just talked about. So that's the thing. Now, pressure control, it has its own set of limitations in that, Tidal volume's not consistent. So if you're doing a thoracic case, probably not your, your perfect choice because it is completely dependent on compliance of the chest. So mm-hmm. increased compliance, you'll have increased tidal volume. Decreased compliance, you'll have decreased tidal volume. So you're going to be very erratic and all over the place based on what they're doing. If they're doing any manipulation of the chest, thoracic cases or anything like anything, like even if it's just abdominal insufflation, whatever, you're going to have very erratic, uh, tidal volume. So those are really the big differences between the two. Let's say you're doing a neuro case, you know, pressure control. is obviously a great option. Let's say you're doing ortho orthopedic or, uh, orthopedic procedures could be a very good depending on the, where the orthopedic procedure is and that type of thing. Are they manipulating the chest and you're not going to have such a great outcome, but if they don't need to manipulate the chest, then it's, it's a, it's an awesome way to ventilate because it is so much safer. I mean, you're never going to go over a certain pressure. And so it is delivered by what we call a decelerating flow. So you'll notice if, if anybody looks at your waveforms on your pressure waveform, you know, the volume is kind of a spike up, spike down. Pressure is this big square and it really does optimize ventilation. It gives you longer time under the curve, better gas exchange, oxygenation, all those kind of things. So anything pressure control and pressure support delivers by that modality, by that same philosophy. So, you know, you're going to have better gas exchange in the long run. So I love, I'm a pressure control kind of girl. I'll be honest. Oh my gosh, same. Same. (laughs) So so I love pressure control because I think it's a better way to ventilate, but it does have its limitations in certain cases that we're just talking about. So, you know, our dental, our dental case, perfect, perfect mode for that. You know, it's because you're not going to be impacting the chest at all. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, All right. Just for our listeners who may be not as familiar with these terms, can you let our listeners know what is meant when you say atelectasis and then what is also meant when you say shearing? Okay, so shearing. We'll start with shearing. So what it is 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 when we increase pressure too high. Okay, so I'm going to start with a balloon because I think balloon is the best way to, to describe it. So take a balloon for the first time you've ever inflated it. And how hard is it to blow up that balloon? It's it's really hard, right? It requires a super amount of pressure. And sometimes your cheeks feel like they're going to explode, especially if you're a little kid. It's like, I can't get this balloon. I can't. But after that first time, it changes a lot. So obviously the, the pressure in that balloon, think about how big it went the first time versus how big it gets every time after that. 
So if we keep giving that same pressure every time that we blow up the balloon, eventually the balloon is going to stretch to a point that it's non-recoverable. So that would be a, a kind of an explanation of shearing. It's a simplified explanation of shearing, but it's never going to get its shape back. So that's what we're looking at. The lungs actually have a way of recovering. The, you know, the alveoli can recover, but the damage is, is pretty serious and you get a whole bunch of inflammatory responses to it. And that's mm -hmm. kind of why you don't want to go down that path if you can. But if I was to simplify it, that's the best way I can think of explaining it. And so um, that would be shearing. And that typically happens during uh, an inspiratory phase. I mean, you can have it at other times, you can have it with high peeps, you can see, you know, different, different things like that. But it, it typically your shearing is prevented by peep, not caused by peep, unless you're going really, really high peeps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Excellent. so if that kind of gives you a, a, a little bit of an idea of shearing. So what is atelectasis? If we're going to head down that path of atelectasis, basically this occurs when we're breathing really, really fast, or we have a disease process. It's more common, like if we're if we get sick and we can't really take a big breath or something like that, we have a lot of little air sacs up in our lungs, and so do dogs. You know, all these. So if we were to lay them all out, they'd probably be the size of a football field for animals, or or for or horses, even bigger, probably ten football fields. But um, so. Um, what does that mean? You know, if we're not breathing and, and, and we think about it when we take a normal breath and we're standing up, that whole breath can descend to the bottom of our lungs and those little air sacs get what they need. And so they stay open. But, you know, if we're just panting and we're lying on our side, there's no gravity to help us along, or it might be gravity only on one side. So therefore you're going to see the shrinking of these alveoli. And what does that do? It basically, it's kind of like the use it or lose it philosophy. If you're not using it, you're losing it. And so our whole goal at any time should be preventing atelectasis because to, to lose it, it takes a while to recover it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the peep and all those kind of things. I mean, it's great. I mean, it's a wonderful way to, to really encourage, you know, the, um, the atelectasis from, or preventing the atelectasis. That's what we want to do. And our whole goal, we want these patients to come out and be as healthy as they possibly can post anesthesia. 100%. All right, good. I feel like everybody, I feel like this has been very informative. Also, I know that for some of our listeners, this is a lot of information. So you probably have to like stop, re-listen to this podcast, write some of these terms down, go look them up, that kind of thing. Um, but I think that it's really important information because as you get more advanced in your anesthesia and you're seeing these more advanced cases, critical cases, you know, ones that don't have great compliance or you are doing thoracic procedures, all of these terms are so important to know because I do think that for a long time, at least from my own experience, I only had experience with one type of ventilator. So I only knew volume mode. It really wasn't until I started at a specialty center and worked with an anesthesiologist that I got to learn, you know, when I would utilize volume mode, when I would utilize pressure, when I could take advantage of this SIMV that really opened up my eyes. And now like, I love this kind of stuff. It's so fascinating. So hats off to, to you for all the work that you've done, all the education that you're giving people in respiratory physiology. It's, it's pretty cool. 
Oh, I love it. This is awesome. This is, I get so excited about respiratory stuff. So I have to say, yeah. <laughs> if I only had a broad knowledge elsewhere, I'd be, I might be well-rounded. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, same. I full just like every time I do like a relief shift at some places, I'm like, listen, like I know anesthesia and pain management, full disclosure. If you asked me to like fill in on like a vaccine clinic, I would be lost. Like, I don't know what vaccines we give anymore. I have such a niche, you know, basically you need to put me in an OR uh, with an anesthesia machine in front of me or else I'm kind of lost. (laughs) Well, I have to say I'm a bit, I'm a bit on the, on the, on the same, on the same pathway. I, uh, you know, I, I get a little, little drained really fast when it's eyes wide open. I look like that cat who just got caught in the headlights. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Glennis, for taking the time today to explain all these different ventilation modes and all of these, this, you know, kind of the nuances of it. I know that some of our listeners will be maybe a little more vigilant in providing positive pressure or even mechanical ventilation when we see these end tidal CO2s, you know, consistently in the 60s. Then we'll start thinking about ways we can remedy that. And you're such a wealth of information. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. It was most delightful. some stuff you guys.